Hello and welcome once again to episode 37 of Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators hoping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code. My name is Dimitri and I'll be your host once again for this episode and I'm joined today by my fellow completionist, Spencer. Hey there. And we have a special guest today, Michael Redick. Hello. Uh, so before we get into our main topic, it's time for Indie App Spotlight. First up is Spam Sieve by Michael Tsai, a Mac app that adds powerful spam filtering to your preferred email client. Spam Sieve keeps track of your email and intelligently uses Bayesian spam filtering to easily catch spam before you do. It maintains an allow list to known good senders and a block list to known bad ones. It checks attachments and will even highlight how spammy each message is so you can check its work. Not to mention, you don't even need to leave your email app to use it. It just works. Spamseed costs $30 to own or $48 for a family license, so please support Michael by trying it out. Finally, we have Table Flip by Christian Seats, a Mac app dedicated to making markdown tables. Table Flip makes it easy to switch between plain markdown and a dedicated table editor, allowing you to edit your tables by adding rows and columns anywhere. When you're done, Table Flip will convert that table back to markdown, making it easy for you to prepare your file. Table Flip costs $8.99 and is available on the Mac App Store, so please support Christian by entrusting it with all your tabling needs. And if you are an indie developer, we want to hear from you. Please reach out to us on Twitter at CodeCompletion via DM so we can spotlight your app in the future as well. So let's jump right into our interview. Uh, Michael, can you tell us about how you got into development and specifically Apple platform development? Um, because I'm assuming you're into iOS development, right? A little bit, yeah. Do you mind <laughs> if I ask a question about uh, one of the indie apps that you mentioned first? Oh, go for it. Um, so Spamseed, that I have a vague recollection of that from like years and years years ago. Is this an old app or is this a new app? It's an old but very well maintained app. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's. Uh, I've heard of it. I definitely should use that. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah, yeah Mike, Michael Tsai makes a lot of good, uh, like, general utilities, I would say. Uh, so Ooh, definitely Tooth check Fairy. out all their, all their apps. Yeah, Tooth oh, Fairy's th- great. This site looks familiar. I've been there before. Yeah, you, you, probably, you probably follow him on Twitter where he just, in general, posts links to stuff around the web uh, that is all development-related. Uh, and he does an excellent job at updating, like, past entries uh, so you can kind of see how, how that story evolves over time, which I really yeah. appreciate. I'll definitely have to get that. And if you guys have me on here again, I'll give a a review as to how I like the app. <laughs> nice. Definitely. So, yeah, yeah how, did, how did you get into development? Um, I've, from the earliest I can remember, uh, my, my parents had a printing business growing up, um, and they had a Mac Plus to do all their page layout. And so I, the, the, the concept of programming was something that I didn't really get into until high school, but the innards of computers, how they work, and just the tinkering, hacking away at the keyboard, trying to get something to work, uh, was something that intrigued me from the earliest memories I can remember, hacking away at the Mac Plus, breaking things, my parents getting mad at me so that I... Uh, because they'd have to fix the computer to get their business running. And uh, eventually I learned how to fix it myself so that I could, you know, 
venture break around the computer, break things, <laughs> then fix it so that I wouldn't get in trouble for uh, my family to actually be able to continue to earn money to feed our family. And uh, yeah, so one of the, I think it's kind of silly um, when I was uh, when I had the you know assignments in class to write papers. I was using Cork Express, like professional $1,000 page layout software to do my homework compared to, you know, every other kid used Microsoft Word to do their uh, homework. And yeah, Cork Express was just what made sense to me at the time and what we had. Yeah, I, I definitely have, I have I have a very similar, like, backstory as well. My mom, also in graphic design, we grew up with, like, Macs around the house, Quadras, old That's Power awesome. PCs. Uh, and yeah, all the software that she had was professional graphics software, including Quark Express. So I know exactly that feeling of, of using the, the top of the line professional page layout stuff uh, and everyone else like handwriting their stuff still, not knowing <laughs> anything about computers. And yeah. What I think is exceptionally funny is because my parents had that, my mom taught me a lot of what I know about how to use computers. Mm-hmm. And it baffles me how many times she asked me the same questions about things she taught me how to do these things. That's that's just like the peak irony right there. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't until high school then that you got into programming then? Yeah, real programming. I guess technically mm-hmm. uh, there was... okay. One one thing that I think is an extremely fun factoid is that Coco, the, you know, the, the mm-hmm. name of the uh, SDK that we use to make, um, I guess, iOS to a degree, but really Mac apps, mm-hmm. that happened, that was just a, to the best of my knowledge, I should say, just a random trademark Apple had sitting around because they had it from a previous project, which happens to be my first foray into programming. Uh, if you aren't familiar, there was a program called Coco DR3 that Apple had in the mid-90s that was a very similar to what Scratch is nowadays, the mm-hmm. that MIT fun program for kids, programming for kids thing. Apple had that in the mid-90s, called it Coco DR3, and it was this very intuitive way to uh, work with sprites and have like a causal effect cause and effect kind of interaction between different things on screen that uh was kind of my first concept of an introductory concept to like how the state of one thing can affect the other and variables will transition from one object to the next that kind of concept there and i never figured out how to push that further into real like code writing until I had a high school uh, computer class that was uh, it was introductory to computer science where we learned how to write Perl scripts and it was it, like everything kind of started to make sense at that point uh, all coming together writing in Perl yeah P- Perl was actually my first language as well um, I, I remember picking up a book from the library uh, and not knowing anything about anything, and I'm like, I'm going to learn programming. Uh, so, so I would copy that, down. That's an unusual like <laughs> first language for, 
I don't know why my high school teacher chose that because Python was definitely a better choice given the time frame that I learned this as well. But mm-hmm. like fist bump, <laughs> it's, it's what they knew, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I remember, like, copying down these pages of code because, like, that's the only way to get it onto the computer, right? You use your eyes. Right. Um, and I was endlessly confused by the pipe character, which was printed as broken. And I'm like, I don't have this on my keyboard. Um, so I, Oh, you mean, like, it was a, a, a line segment and then a vertical, uh, a horizontal space between half yeah, and half Yeah, so the pipe character, depending on, like, what font you were using, it was either broken or solid, uh, and it was all broken all over the code examples, uh, which I would assume makes it easier to, like, tell apart from, like, an L uh, when it's it's being printed as monospace or whatever. Um, And, yeah, that was my first roadblock that I had to figure out over months of not knowing what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, kudos to Perl being the first language to learn. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, so when was it that you started making what you would consider as, like, an app today or website or things like that? Um, I mean, I guess technically before that, I had dabbling in HTML and, you know, I'd make crappy little websites for myself and my friends we we actually did a star wars fan film in high school uh that would have actually pre-high school that would have predated my learning pearl but uh that would have just been you know tweaking html and putting images in there Mm -hmm. uh doing like real code programming there was a i can't remember how i came across it but I came. I, I stumbled upon a Udemy course that was showing how to use SpriteKit. It was like right after SpriteKit was released at, at uh, DubDub. Um, not long afterwards, this Udemy course came across my vision <laughs> somehow, and uh, I just kind of looked at the introductory part of that, and I was like, "I can do that. This looks really cool." And so I bought it followed through it and uh, actually started a, a game company with a few of my friends. And uh, we actually, from right right there, like it was only a couple months later that we released a, um, we had a tower defense game. We had a little mini game kind of concept that we started developing on and actually released on the App Store as well as a game that we started development on and never actually finished because, you know, this side project for all of us was a side project, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was a lot of fun. And actually, the tower defense game, I think, is still on the App Store unless Apple took it down because of, like, the, the new... The sixty-four bit purge. Yeah, like I did recompile it for the sixty-four bit uh, oh. conversion, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, I think it's still on the App Store, but it might not be. Uh, I, if if it's not, it's something that's on my to-do list to make sure that it is. <laughs> Excellent. And what really was cool. that? What was that game called? Uh, Arcade Defense. So that I think that's super interesting that. 
you kind of got into iOS development with SpriteKit. Um, and me having been someone that's that's never really touched SpriteKit other than some quick tutorials, how was how was the transition from building an app, you know, like a game with SpriteKit into kind of the more traditional, quote unquote, uh, app development that we, we kind of, you know, do today, table views and all that stuff? Was it fairly transferable? It, like, I know that you're using Swift and everything, but I actually wasn't. architecturally, you weren't? No, I was, this was Oh, were you using Objective-C? Oh, yes. right. Okay. That makes sense. But yeah. So um, yeah, like, tell us about that. It was weird. Like, <laughs> there's so much that I'd look up tutorials about how to do things that would, you know, venture slightly outside of SpriteKit and use the UIKit components. And all of these tutorials assume some basic familiarity with UIKit that I had absolutely nothing, no familiarity with whatsoever. Right. And uh, when I decided that it was worth looking into UIKit, it was, it, it, like, on its own, it was a little weird to cross that mental bridge between, you know, SpriteKit is this, like, it was just siloed. SpriteKit's over here, UIKit's over here. It, it was not very long ago that I finally had that kind of epiphany that, you know, SpriteKit is just a view that exists in UIKit, so I can manipulate it mm -hmm. like any other UIKit component just like I would any other UI, UI kit component. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that um, there was definitely a very long time and <laughs> quite a while where I actually tried to just, I built everything in SpriteKit. I had um, not really understanding the MVC or any kind of architecture whatsoever. I had my, you know, whatever spaghetti architecture I used that was just run and gun but it was all done in sprite kit all my models existed in there all my views existed in there it was just it was sprite kit for everything and uh like it was a lot of fun but it, it definitely grew into be a, a giant mess that i could barely maintain mm -hmm. yeah I, I i i definitely echo that kind of sentiment because pre-ios uh right when core animation came out basically that was like the framework that really allowed me to uh, express myself in terms of user interface design. Uh, and I got to the point where everything was just layers uh, and I wasn't using any views anywhere, which made like event handling a nightmare uh, basically because I had to do the translation myself between the views and the layers uh, that they corresponded to, especially as I was getting fancy with my 3D projections uh, and cover flow type UIs, you know. Uh, what was cool back in the day uh, okay. so like I definitely I definitely see where you were coming from where you get really used to just doing something with one tool set and it it's kind of scary to venture outside of that because you feel comfortable there right yeah definitely there, there it, it, just as you said that feeling of comfort to uh, stick in what you stick with what you know like mm -hmm. I even made a couple efforts to venture out because like like I mentioned, all those tutorials that would dabble, reach into UI kit for a component or two, and then come back into Sprite kit and interact mm -hmm. somehow. It was something that I just felt like, okay, it's worth learning UI kit. Setting out to learn UI kit, I found a bunch of stuff that kind of, kind of got me started, but it wasn't until I went to Lambda that everything really clicked and really made sense. Mm-hmm. 
So we'll get to Lambda in a moment, but mm-hmm. I wonder uh, nowadays with SwiftUI how similar that kind of sentiment is for a lot of new developers that are coming in. They are probably learning SwiftUI first. Uh, and as soon as you need to leave the safe space that is SwiftUI to kind of dabble with uh, UI kit controls and stuff that is not just directly represented, uh, I wonder if they're going to get that same sentiment as they need to ride this gangly UI view representable code everywhere to kind of make that bridge happen. Right. Yeah. I, that's a really interesting thought. I had not considered that. And I expect that sort of mental silo is probably going to exist in a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I think even now for us, or at least for me, that mental silo existed when when SwiftUI was kind of coming out. And even now, it's not like I'm using SwiftUI all the time. I'm mostly in UIKit. And so I think we un, maybe unintentionally silo ourselves off of like, this is where I'm comfortable. And mm-hmm. just like you, Michael, you know, we need to maybe break out and, and learn things because we know, well, okay, you know, this is either going to be the future or at least it's a component of the future. So, you know, it's it's probably good to break out in some sense. Um, I think we could, you know, take that further and say, well, we all live in iOS land. Let's let's go to macOS or let's go to Android or something. And I think you know you could probably limit yourself to some extent. But uh, yeah, I mean, continuing to learn things and, and branch out is probably a good idea. And you know, no doubt, if if you would have stuck with SpriteKit, you would have been great at it. But like you saw it didn't quite do everything that you needed it to once you kind of hit a certain point. So that's, that's really interesting. I mean, I even went to the, like Dimitri mentioned, like handling events. I went to the degree of writing a whole, effectively a framework for SpriteKit to be able to create buttons very similar to the, what UIKit ultimately did. But I don't, I don't think I had used UIKit to that degree to know how UIKit buttons worked. I just wanted buttons. I wanted, wanted to have a dynamic button framework in SpriteKit so that I'd be able to add a button to the screen that would just make a button given a little bit of uh, context. Like, here's a button, do this. And yeah, that uh, I just lost my train of thought, but um, um, I, 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 go ahead. I also do want to just point out that it, the it sounds like I was very ambitious and hopped on that you know crossing that mental silo right away, but I should point out that it's it it t- that was over the course of uh, I I learned SpriteKit and you know did that kind of stuff in like around 2012 2013, and it wasn't until probably several years later that I actually reached out into UI kit. So it's, it's not like I was, uh, extremely virtuous and, uh, <laughs> disciplined right away. Like it was a long transition to realize that I needed to do that kind of get out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So, so I you started, fine. I mean, none of us are virtuous in the sense of, <laughs> We're going to go out and learn every single framework that they just announced at DubDub. Like, no one... Exactly. Well, may, maybe Paul Hudson does that, but that's probably it. Yeah, I just don't want to set an, uh, expectations for others 
that they need to be able to do that right away. Like it, the t- taking right. time is fine is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. And, and I, I was a little curious too, since you started with objective C, how was the transition going from objective C to Swift uh, for you? I actually hated Swift when it came out. <laughs> um, I, I felt very comfortable. It was the, the, the square brackets were very comforting for me. Uh, it, it just very visually delineated the, you know, what stuck together. It was actually kind of nice. Uh, but it was... I took several breaks away from programming, which also contributed to those several years of uh, time elapsing between things. But it, one of the times I came back, Swift had evolved, I think, to version 3 by the, at that point. And I decided to take another look at it to see had it evolved. Uh, one of the things that I really hated about it in the first uh, iteration was I needed I, I rely heavily on code completion. Um, I will type the first few characters or several characters that are spread throughout you know the the symbol that I'm trying to express, and let the editor handle the busy work of ha- filling in all the letters that I didn't want to type. So doing that with Swift in the early days was slow, ridiculously slow. And I, I couldn't handle that. Plus I was happy with the syntax I had in Objective-C already. So, you know, why? But around Swift 3, the, the speed had caught up to the point where it would actually keep up with me in the uh, editor to fill out code completion. And the syntax in general had evolved to the point where it f- flowed very well and whether it was Swift evolving or me stepping away and coming back to it that allowed me to have a fresh take, not directly comparing it to what I felt comfortable with in Objective-C. I don't know what it was exactly, but uh, coming back to it, I'm 100% Swift and actually kind of abhor Objective-C usage now. Yeah, using both languages is definitely tough if you are stuck in a code base that has both you end up one day uh putting semicolons where they're not supposed to be in another day forgetting that they exist uh and typing like lines and lines of code and nothing is happy at you especially code completion just <laughs> completely breaks um so uh, i i it's it's definitely a good thing when you can work on just like one language at a time uh especially for a long duration of time um, I wouldn't go so far to say that I hate one, that I like one over the other. I mean, essentially, you can do the same things with both languages, um, which uh, I think is a testament to how well Apple builds a lot of their frameworks. That uh, they everything is just available. I remember someone saying uh, Objective C compatibility in Swift was probably the thing that slowed it down the most, but at the same time, that's what allowed Swift to take off, right? If we weren't able to use all the frameworks that are currently still written in Objective-C, then we wouldn't have anything at the moment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I shouldn't. I shouldn't say I abhor Objective-C. Just I like <laughs> Swift so much relative. Mm-hmm. It just it's it's dwarfed. Uh, mm-hmm. I I still definitely have an affinity for Objective-C, and I, to be honest, it's probably primarily nostalgia, but. There, there are definitely things that are cool about the language on its own that are unique from Swift. I mean, you went from one wacky language, Perl, to another wacky language, Objective-C, so they're all good. 
Yes, that is very true. You were never introduced to a normal programming language, so it all it all just flowed. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, that's like one thing with you know um, these these languages when you are kind of going back and forth is for a long time I absolutely hated Objective C too, and then you know I. I used it a little bit more and now I work like Dimitri said I'm in one of those code bases where I'm using both Objective-C and Swift every day and so at this point uh it's it's pretty normal to me but Dimitri can attest for a few months when I started my my new job I would just go in our our like personal uh code completion slack and just be like I you know I forgot the parentheses around a conditional statement where I keep forgetting whatever and it's it you know it, it's it's hard to kind of mentally shift that, but then a few, like a month or so ago, I now I look at bool all uppercased as like the right way to put bool instead of lowercase, and so it, it's weird how your perception of of the language changes and like your um, your thoughts on it, I guess if that makes sense. So you know, not that one is better than the other. It's just they're they're different. But like Dimitri said, that's the best part is that you can use them both and kind of feel comfortable with whichever one you, you want to. And it's, there's heavy, heavy overlap there. I think we can all agree though, that uh, across all languages, having an all uppercase yes and no as our Boolean types is the, is the best option. Um, It's, it's very assertive. It is. (laughs) One of my friends who is a C++ programmer, was couldn't stop laughing at me when I would write out booleans in yes and no format screen sharing with him. <laughs> like, whoa. <laughs> I mean, I, something you have to like about Objective-C is a lot of it was just a bunch of type defs that just like auto-magically compiled to real code. Um, and that includes like yes and no. Those were just type defs for one and zero. Um, and the simplicity of that is something that I think was really good to have. It's not that anymore. If you actually go and check in Xcode, there's no header file that imports yes equals one and no equals zero. That is taken care of by the compiler now. And a lot of those magic, or I, I should say non-magic bits turned into magic um, that just became part of the language um, over time. And a lot of Swift still feels that way, where it's like very much magic that something will work or something will not work. Um, And I think that is one of the pieces that makes it a much harder language than something like Objective-C to kind of get into. Objective-C, the language itself is very straightforward. There's a few rules, and once you know them, you're good and you're happy. Um, But something like Swift has many different types of rules that you need to keep track of if you want to use a language that's full potential. And then all of a sudden, a lot of stuff becomes ambiguous and hard to reason about, uh, especially when you need to type it from memory because autocomplete is not necessarily going to help you uh, with those certain situations because it doesn't know what you're trying to get to. Right, yeah. I've been fortunate enough that none of the projects I've been working on have broken autocomplete just fundamentally. So that is... a uh... I mean, I, I don't, I don't see any detriment to leaning heavily on autocomplete just because it's, mm-hmm. it's such an important tool that speeds you up when it's available. I do get that, you know, there will be times where 
<clears throat> excuse me, the compiler is too slow at filling out autocomplete that it'll just not work. So you'll have to learn the hard way. But I do also feel like you will naturally learn the rest of the language just through exposure mm -hmm. when using autocomplete. So a quick aside, have either of you uh, checked out the, what's that new thing that GitHub has? The GitHub um, thing? No. Yeah, uh, Codepilot? Codepilot, yeah. No, I, I haven't looked into it. I've heard of it. So it's, it's for the listeners out there who haven't heard of it, um, it's basically autocomplete uh, with machine learning. So if you say, I want a function that checks if a number is odd or even, it will just autocomplete that entire function for you. Um, and it seems to work like one time out of 10 for like complex things, um, which is amazing that it works at all. Um, and I'm, I, I wonder if like something like that is a good thing to have in the long run uh, as developers um, or if it's just going to make mistakes easier to do, since if that version of autocomplete doesn't know what the correct pattern actually is, it's just kind of figuring it out from context of past code, is that actually a benefit? Yeah, it sort of seems like a crutch to me in the sense, in, in a similar sense of the way that people will sometimes abuse Stack Overflow, where they're not really thinking about the solution, they're just saying, give me a solution. Mm-hmm. There's actually a very specific instance of that where I, I can't remember the specific article, but someone wrote an article about how he answered a question and it was technically wrong, but still worked in most cases. And it became the mo one of the most used pieces of code just in general in code bases in the, on the internet. And I could definitely see a situation like that kind of take hold through the co-pilot uh, where if it, sources some piece of code that will work in a lot of cases but not some edge cases we could end up with a lot of code that is uh fundamentally incorrect mm -hmm. okay so we we took quite a detour um going back to <laughs> your your adventure to uh, making apps uh so you started off making sprite kit apps and you actually put those on the app store when was it that you started making uh more UI kit focused apps that uh, you would probably say are properly built for their purpose rather than using Sprite kit to get to that. I end. mean, if properly built is a requirement, I that's much more stringent than just using <laughs> UI kit. But uh, I made a, uh, in high school I used, I was always a bit of an oddball um, instead of the TI Texas Instruments graphing calculators that everyone else used. I used HP calculators, and uh, that had a feature that is known as reverse Polish notation. And I fell in love with that method of running using a calculator, but uh, I wasn't satisfied with any of the apps that were on the App Store for RPN calculators, at least the free ones. I, I may have, there may have been good ones that were paid, but I was too cheap at the time. Um, so I wrote an RPN calculator, and uh, that was primarily written in UIKit, which was extremely messy and bad in terms of the code, but it, it worked. And I put that up on the App Store, and I still use that as my calculator app today. Uh, nice. That's awesome. 
it's not very popular for the record, but <laughs> I don't think reverse Polish notation and calculators are very popular in general, so I wouldn't take it personally. <laughs> but yeah, um, it was that was probably the first one that I did outside of Sprite Kit. So, and then kind of continuing on this journey, um, how did you, you know, end up going from from there to you know from Sprite Kit to finally diving into UI kit to, you know, being where you are now, where you are a full-time iOS engineer. How did you kind of, you know, bridge that gap, I suppose? Well, I wanted, uh, I got a job doing IT for an MSP, uh, just to fill in the blanks here. An MSP is a managed service provider that does IT services for not just a single business. It does IT for clients. And the, the idea is that instead of these hundreds of businesses having, each having their own IT, they outsource it to us. And I was getting sick of that job. Uh, I, I like the people I work with, but the job itself was dealing with Windows all the time. And you know, I, that's just nonsense I don't want to deal with in my everyday life. <laughs> so I wanted to get back into programming more and pursue that more heavily. So I, I decided that I'd move out west and look for a job. Around the same time uh, that I decided to do that, uh, my body was decide- I, I Backing up a little bit, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in high school, uh, ulcers in the large intestine. I, for, I'll, I'll not get into the graphic details for the sake of the podcast, but uh, it's not fun. Um, so I was, I was in remission doing pretty well while I was working at my IT job, but as I decided to move on from the IT job, which mind you was very stressful, probably largely committed to the the flare up of ulcerative colitis, uh, that happened. But as I decided to move, that happened. This was after we had bought a house (laughs) and, it was a rental, so like we could then rent it out to other people, but we had already signed a lease to rent it out to other people after before my uh, ulcerative colitis had flared up. So we had to move in with my sister and uh, just kind of mooch off of her for a year, uh, we being my, my wife and I. Um, having decided to pursue programming now, I had applied to a lot of jobs and just I was kind of getting depressed in terms of like, what's the point that I keep applying? I keep getting rejected. I keep applying. I keep getting rejected. I've never even gotten an interview as I recall. So like on one hand, I was okay with it because given the assumption that that's what it's just like, it's just a matter of getting numbers, like just keep applying and keep finally you'll get something. But since I didn't know if that was the case or not, I I just was lost. I didn't know whether I should keep trying or whether it was not normal to have that kind of result. And I didn't know anyone to ask to find out if this was normal and I should just keep trying or if I should change my tactics somehow. And it it was somewhere in that time span that uh living with my sister that i came across lambda and thought 
you know, just given the reviews and the research that they did on the, on the company and the education they provide, it, it seemed like a good place to go to both fill out my fundamentals, because that was something that I felt like was potentially holding me back in general, just the utter basics. And beyond that, they had career services. So it, they'd have support there to find out, like, is what I'm doing with just massively applying and not getting any responses, is that normal? And I just have to keep trying and keep playing the numbers game. Right. And yeah, that was one of the best decisions I've ever made. I, I guess to fill that out a little further, um, <laughs> going to Lambda filled in the basics. Like I, I had a lot of the high level concepts already understood, like just the way code works and flows. But then Lambda was something there that really helped fill in the basics of, you know, design architecture and how to, you know, make your project manageable. And then filled in a lot of just connecting the dots between how one component of UIKit worked and flowed with another and things that just weren't intuitive or explicitly written in the tutorials that I've experienced on the internet. And... That, that that the curation of the the lessons and the lesson plan and the actual again the focus on actual design architecture which is not something I see very frequently in tutorials or even my college friends talk talk about how they wish they were taught uh, design in uh, uh, architecture design in their college classes but you know that's something I had in my education here. Uh, this is turning into an ad for Lambda, it sounds like. Um, <laughs> well, not that they have an <laughs> iOS program right now anyway, so. <laughs> Which is unfortunate, because that was, it was a blast. I loved it. Um, I, I was talking about, well, okay, so backing up, I can't remember if I talked about this in one of the last few episodes, or if it was in just Dimitri and I speaking. Um, we, we were talking about Vapor a few uh a few episodes ago. Um, and I mentioned that, uh, you had built for one of your projects in the computer science portion of the, of Lambda school, you had built a multi-user dungeon. That was one of the assignments and you decided to use vapor with web sockets, right? Is that, do I remember that correctly? Yes. I can't remember the exact sequence of events because the first time we went through it. We did a. We used Django the first time around, but then I can't remember if it was part of the school project or just because I wanted to do it on my own. I rewrote it in Vapor with WebSockets. Yes, that's super cool. I yeah, we were just a lot of that episode was dedicated to you know making a REST API and building a front end with some HTML and CSS. But Dimitri pointed out. Um, you can use things like WebSockets. And I thought that was a really cool uh, kind of real world example of, of using sockets to build this whole entire multi-user dungeon with Vapor. So yeah, just kind of an aside, but I thought that was super cool. Both yeah, when really you were a student it. and now. Definitely yeah, it's a, it. it's a testament to Vapor that it makes it easy to do and jump into, right? Um, I assume mm -hmm. that was your first time using Vapor, Michael? I mean, doing a real project, I think so. Um, mm -hmm. Beyond, uh, I probably did like a couple of tutorials that were just like throwaway projects, you know, make a to-do list kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
So are you working on any projects uh, right now that uh, you're building like up? side projects or main work, do you mean? Uh, side projects, main work, whatever you're proud of. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, uh, definitely I am. Um, well, my, my full-time job is working at Nomi, which is a, a new startup. Um, we are close to getting to the App Store, actually. And uh, so that is uh, a social app where you, it's designed to be able to catalog moments in your life and then archive them, share them with people who actually matter to you in a very privacy-centric way. Uh, and it's been a real challenge and a lot of fun, and I'm impressed with myself to, like I don't want to toot my own horn, horn too hard but like I, I'm really happy with what I've been able to do there um, I am technically the iOS lead and I'm not sure if I deserve that t title or not but I, it's what I am and uh, yeah that, that's quite an exciting app I'm, I was told that I am uh, able to share the beta invite if uh, we want to put that in the show notes at all so awesome. we can definitely throw that in there. Yeah, definitely. Um, and side projects, uh, are you... If we include only the ones I'm actively working on, there's probably still too many to count, but um, <laughs> the one that I'm working on most recently uh, started when I... My extended family has an email list that just is continually going, and we were running into problems where my grandma was clicking on links and emails without any real uh, mental filter, let's say. <laughs> so uh, we were getting worried that she was going to start getting scammed and you know, sending money to Nigeria. And uh, so I made an app that... Uh, just inspired by scrolling through Twitter, I came across this app that w w will listen to you, all the openings of links that you t click on one app to open to, into another and then route them to the correct app as it goes. And being inspired by that, I was like, hey, I could listen to links and then just stop you if you're opening them from email, for example. So uh, I made an app that just sits in your menu bar that... Uh, like I said, listens for links as you click on them. If they come from your email app, then it'll be like, hey, did you mean to click that link? And it'll list out the link in full so that you, like, cause you can click on an image and not know what actual URL is laying underneath that image. Mm -hmm. And ideally, you could, uh, uh, I'm trying to add this feature in where you can, like, remove tracking from it so that you can, you know, still follow the link but without tracking. Uh, I want to do a few other things with it too but the main thing is that it has that has you double check did you mean to click this link this link could be suspicious you know double check that it says you know if you click on a facebook link it says facebook.com in the url not fakebook.com or something to that effect and, and uh, yeah that's the biggest and what's thing. this app called that's a good question. I think I called the email link protector. It's not very, uh, <laughs> not very clever. Just 
says what it does. Awesome. Yeah. Is that um, have you have you put it on the App Store? Yes, it is on the App Store. Awesome. Cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely. It it's a, we'll be sure to link to it in the show notes as well. It's a very limited quality app right now, and I'm, I'm working on an update that will definitely improve the UI and flow by a lot when I finally get out. Awesome. Yeah, we don't we don't want to be sending money to Nigerian princes, even though they're good princes. Exactly. <laughs> they're good. I mean, princes, if they're the real Nigerian prince, I mean that 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 might be one thing, but. And since since you have like a long history of like dabbling in programming, but not quite like jumping in all the way um, until most recently, um, what sort of advice or tips would you give to anyone else that kind of wants to do development full time, but just never took the plunge yet? I don't know if I have anything new or innovative to say that hasn't been said a million times before already, but. Uh, I've always lived my life by the philosophy that I don't think I'm smarter than anyone else. I think I, like just me personally, I think I just care more about learning. And that's something that you can decide to do on your own. So if you decide that you want to learn something, do it. And I think that's great advice. The rest will come. Yeah, definitely. So then I guess, uh, do you have any questions for us as... Uh, people that potentially have more experience uh, in development um, than you or uh, anything of that sort? Uh, this Pick is our the brains. Part of interviews. This is the part of interviews that, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking to like job interviews that I'm mm-hmm. yeah. the worst at. <laughs> it's the most important um, part. If, if, it, it definitely if is. And I'm say. a horrible example because I, I usually say, I, I, I'm, 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 simultaneously both insanely curious but also like i i like to filter out the noise so i don't ask what i feel like are nonsense questions or things that i already know mm-hmm. um I, I don't mean that to sound conceited either but it's like well no well you know, let me just to kind of put this into perspective these the questions that you ask us are going to determine whether or not we ask you to be a co-host again. So, you know, no pressure or anything. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. <laughs> gotcha. Um, yeah, this is a real interview, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you start on Monday. Uh, <laughs> I... Uh, can't think of anything right now but i kind of have a blank mind coming into this interview so uh, i apologize for not having that kind of question prepared no not at all it's all good this week's episode of code completion is brought to you by pennant calling all sports fans want to keep track of the season but there's so many teams and not enough time check out pennant pennant provides sports standings at a glance Pennant displays league standings as a simple bar chart where the best teams rise to the top throughout the season. Of course, you can dig in deeper with team stats, game results, and more. Version 10 introduced the all-new customizable My Pennant View, where you can build a wide selection of visualizations for any sport, division, or team. Unlock Pennant Premium to add as many blocks as you'd like and put any of them on your home screen as a widget. Whether you follow MLB, NFL, NBA, NHL, or MLS, Pennant has you covered with more sports and leagues coming soon. 
Thank you so much to Pennant for sponsoring Code Completion. Download Pennant on the App Store today. So now that we've gone through our topics, it's time for Complete the Code, where we quiz our listeners on your knowledge of Swift, Apple, and all things development. Spencer? Yeah, so we have a winner from last week who is Michael McGrath. Uh, he writes uh, Control uh, plus Command plus E. Uh, and that is, of course, the correct answer. So if you place your cursor or select any variable uh, using that key command on your keyboard, uh, we'll let you interactively rename all instances of the variable in the current scope, uh, making renames a cinch, luckily. Um, Michael, our guest today, was actually just a few hours too slow, but he did also get the right answer. So uh, no, you know, no worries there. You, all you're, these, uh, your credit all these still Michaels intact. On this, on this podcast are... Uh... We should rename one of us. We should and all now be we Michael. know the shortcut. Yep. That's right. Hey, there we go. <laughs> Good one. I like that. <laughs> um, so this week we have a file-based question for you. Um, if you're listening to the podcast, you can check the podcast art or the show notes to follow along. Uh, so we have a method called check if exists at, that takes in a file path as a URL. And it returns a bool. Uh, because this is in Swift, this is a capital B, lowercase, bool. It's not completely uppercase. Uh, what's the best way to check if the file that is passed in uh, exists or not? So can you complete the code? Tweet your answers to us with hashtag complete the code, all one word. And the first to get it right uh, will get a shout out on uh, the next show that we record. And that brings us uh, to Compiler Error, my favorite segment, where I get to test my fellow completionists and guests' knowledge about Swift, Apple, and all things development. And today we have a theme, and that is Obscure Foundation File Classes. So uh, let's go to our first uh, statement. And uh, statement number one, NS File Volume is a class that allows you to perform fundamental file system operations on volumes, such as inspecting its partitions. Statement number two, NS file wrapper represents nodes in the file system, such as directories known as file packages, but can also represent regular files and symbolic links. Statement number three, NS file handle provides a wrapper for file system descriptors, allowing you to perform basic file I.O., such as reading, writing, and locking files. And statement number four, NS URL protocol allows you to implement custom loading strategies for your own protocols, so they can be used anywhere a regular NS URL is used. So, Michael, as our special guest today, uh, why don't you go first? Feel free to ponder aloud which one you think is the compiler error and therefore is false. The other three are completely factual, so good luck. Okay, so I've, I've used NS file handle before, so that I, I'd say that description is very apt for what it does. That, seem, that, may, that seems correct to me. Um, NSURL protocol is also something I'm vaguely familiar with, so again, that seems close if not exactly correct to what it does it it definitely could be in the technical details that something is maybe a little bit off there but i'm I'm going to lean towards true on that one as well um file wrapper and file volume are not things i've used um i'm gonna take a moment to read them in a little more depth if you don't mind um, if Spencer wants to muse aloud, go for it. No, he's not allowed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say number two is probably the wrong one. Okay. Spencer? 
Yeah, um, I have also used NS file handle, and that seems uh, like a correct description of it. So I'm going to say three is not the compiler error. NSURL protocol sounds familiar, although I've not used it before. I think that's a thing, though. I'm also kind of uh, with Michael on whether it's number one or two. Um, what what seems weird to me is both of them, uh, <laughs> because it seems weird that you would have something very specific to a volume well no i guess not i don't know file wrapper being a representing a node in the file system kind of just seems like that's a url uh so i'm gonna like cover our basis here i'll go with number one although i'm definitely not sure about it a sound strategy uh so let's go over these one at a time uh and we'll start with uh number four so nsurl protocol allows you to implement custom loading strategies for your own protocols and this basically means you can define foo colon slash slash uh to be to mean something special within your app so this is not for when other apps click on a url that has foo colon slash slash this is strictly in your app if you want to pass foo colon slash slash to uh, NSURL session, for instance, it will go ahead and use the URL protocol that you register with the system uh, to actually load that resource. And this is super useful because it works anywhere uh, URL works, whether that's for images or dictionary or anything really. Uh, and that's anything except AV Foundation, uh, at least when I tried it back in iOS 4, uh, which is a long, long yesterday. Uh, so uh, it generally just works, which is pretty convenient and great because it allows you to customize all sorts of things. So that one is a uh, code completion and is completely true. So good job so far. Let's go as, to number... As I recall... Yeah? Um, I believe I've seen NSUL protocol actually used in mocking as well uh, mm -hmm. to uh, replace... Unless it was a similarly named type, uh, it was used to replace the backing behind URL session to then mm -hmm. load the mocking data as opposed to the actual reaching out to the internet. Yeah, that, that's that... actually a great use for it. Um, I never even considered that for mocking, but yeah, you can go ahead and do pretty much whatever you want, um, which is really nifty. And you don't even need to uh, necessarily replace HTTP calls in general. You could have your own uh, scheme that the rest of the URL is completely identical. Um, and that way you can just change an endpoint setting uh, and all your endpoints can then use that new scheme, for instance. So great, great input there. Uh, so that brings us to number three. So NS file handle provides a wrapper for file system descriptors, uh, allowing you to perform basic file IO, such as reading, writing, and locking files. Uh, and this would be true if NS file handle was for file descript system descriptors, which it is, so good job so far. Um, a file system descriptor is basically a number that the system gives you um, in its originality, and I think it's unique per process, um, and I might be wrong about that, but uh, basically every process when you open a file, it says, okay, this file is located at 1, uh, and when you open the next file, this one's at located at 2, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, that's how it keeps track of things, and using an integer for these sorts of things is a great way to get confused quickly. Uh, so that's where NS file handle comes in because it gives a nice object-oriented wrapper around all that so that way you don't mistake what those types are, uh, which is really easy to m get all sorts of fancy bugs that way. 
Uh, so good job so far. This brings us to number two. Uh, so Michael, you think this one is the compiler error. Uh, and let's go over it. So nsfilewrapper represents nodes in the file system, such as directories known as file packages, but can also represent regular files and symbolic links. Um, so if you've ever used uh, the nsdocument API and stuff like that, that uses nsfilewrapper to represent complex types uh, like uh, file packages. Um, but I didn't actually know this before I was looking into it. It can also represent regular files um, and symbolic links. So if you have a link that you need to represent directly as uh, as like what it is on the file system, nsfilewrapper's uh, there to help you out. So that's why uh, it's not super obvious how to make those with uh, nsfilemanager, for instance, because you use nsfilewrapper to do that uh, bit for you. So uh, if you don't actually want to jump to where that linked file is going, you use nsfilewrapper and it'll actually give you a representation representation of that link directly. Uh, so sorry, Michael, but good job, Spencer, uh, because that means that number one is uh, the compiler error, uh, and that is because NS file volume does not exist. Uh, that was just a made up class that I pulled out of thin air. Uh, so you are unfortunately not able to manipulate um, the volumes of file systems through the Cocoa APIs all that much. Uh, there are a lot of methods on NSURL which let you inspect it, however, so you can find out all sorts of information about a volume, like the amount of space that's free, how much is used, all that sorts of good stuff um, using NSURL, uh, which seems like a weird place to have a whole bunch of um, file stuff, uh, but that's where it's that's where it's located. So. Um, that's why NS file wrapper is different. So URL represents where the resource is, and the file wrapper represents the actual thing in the file system. Does is NS file wrapper the class that would allow you to basically link to a file, move it to a different directory, but then still retain the link? I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, it looks like it. Add a symbolic link. Oh, it's deprecated. Uh, a file wrapper? Yeah, it kind of looks like it. Um, I could be wrong, though. I, I know I you can move things seen... with file manager, but, um, as far as symbolicating a link goes, I'm, or a symbolic I, link goes, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Maybe it's NS bookmark. Um, uh, yeah, so a bookmark is uh, actually just data saved in a regular file, um, and that's what an alias is. Uh, so there are bookmarking APIs on NSURL, um, and those are maybe what you're referring to? Well, I, I don't know. I've not uh, looked into it on the programming side. It's not something I've had to, I've come across as anything mm-hmm. myself. But I've noticed in some apps, uh, they will point to a file on the drive, on my hard drive. Um, mm-hmm. specifically Mac here. I don't know if this would exist in, or be mm-hmm. practical in iOS. But I've seen some apps that will point to a file on the system. I'll close the app. I'll move the file to a different location, open the app back up, and I, I typically expect that path to be, have been broken because it's in a new path compared to where it was before, right. so the app doesn't know where to look. Mm-hmm. But somehow the app sometimes can track that movement from one location to the next, even while it's not open. Yeah, so that, that uses bookmark. that uses bookmark data, which is basically an alias um, if you okay. ever made one in Finder. So if, when you make an alias in Finder, 
uh, and you open up that alias in a hex editor, that data that's in there um, is basically a plist that uh, describes um, how to find that original file. And it saves three things, if I'm not mistaken. It saves the path. It saves the uh, node ID, so the inode uh, that the file system is tracking it under. Um, and it saves one more thing. I think it saves like the volume uh, information or something along those lines. Um, and that way it can go ahead and find the file even if it moves because it will keep that same uh, identifier uh, basically if you move it um, because you're not when you move a file, you're not actually moving the file on the file system. You're just saying it's located somewhere else, um, but the file actually stays exactly where it is unless you're um, going from one volume to another at which point right. that move is really just a copy and a delete. Um, and that's where those bookmarks probably start failing. Either way, I love that functionality. So all app developers out there that use that, thumbs up. I love it. <laughs> yeah, so if, Not... you're, if you're making an app and you need to keep track of files, don't save paths. Save bookmarks data that you can get from the NSURL. Not to toot my own, own horn or anything, but I ironically just learned about bookmarks and use them today. So <laughs> that's the only reason I was so confident about that being a bookmark so the world is aligning just for you if, if right. only the compiler was all about url bookmarks right you would have been so <sighs> ready okay. for that <laughs> i know right but you still won today so uh that's true but that was uh that was more of a fluke than anything i <laughs> honestly probably would have gone with two had i been first both of them sound so like ns file volume it sounds legit that's that's what Dimitri's good at, man. He's he's good at coming up with those tricky ones. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, our listeners can find you at uh, mredig. That's m e r e d i g on Twitter. Uh, anything else that you want to plug? Um, I guess, like I said, we'll be on the App Store soon. So, uh, I'll provide you guys with the uh, link to our beta in the to put in the show notes. So you can sign up for Nomi and check that out. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and as always, I want to personally thank everyone for listening in this week. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Code Completion to know when new episodes get released. And feel free to tweet at us if there's a topic that you'd like for us to, dis- and to dig into. Uh, most importantly, as a small podcast, please be sure to share this with your friends and family who are also interested in any part of the process of app development. It's really your support that enables us to continue doing this. And we hope to grow a healthy community around everything we discuss. So once again, I want to give my thanks to Spencer, who is at Spencer C. Curtis. That's S-P-E-N-C-E-R-C-C-U-R-T-I-S on Twitter uh, for joining me this week. My name, once again, is Dimitri, and you can find me at Dimitri Bunyol. That's D-I-M-I-T-R-I-B-O-U-N-I-O-L. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye. See ya. <laughs>